I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As Well, Well. where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, our second episode about the Lord of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring. For this round, we read chapter 7 in the House of Tom Bombadil all the way through chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. Yes, we did. That means that William is very excited to talk about Tom Bombadil. Um, so without further ado, Beyond let's excited. let's just get into it. Uh, now, if you're not necessarily reading along, you might recall from our last episode, they had just run into Tom Bombadil, who is a very merry fellow, and he had invited them back to his house. And that takes us right into chapter seven, where they step literally over the threshold into his house. And this very wondrous stay with this mystery man, Tom Bombadil, starts... Tom is a character that's really kept Tolkien fans pretty, like, mystified. And divided. And divided (laughs) since he first appeared. It seems like people either love or hate Tom Bombadil. I love him. I love him, too. I I can somewhat understand why people don't like him. Don't even pretend. You can't. But I get it. Like, I mean, it, it makes sense. Like, he doesn't fit in with a lot of the other logic of the world he doesn't show up ever again he's barely mentioned again yeah and i think also another thing is tolkien is so consistent with his world and the rules of that world and that's one thing that i think attracts a lot of people to it and so when they are confronted with someone who seems to break all the rules and render some of the stuff seemingly meaningless it seems to uh take them out a little bit and for me, that, that's part of the wonder of Tom Bombadil. Yeah, and, and I think, what he is. I, you know, once we get into it, you're going to discuss your theory about who Tom Bombadil actually is. And personally, I think if you see it through that type of a theory, then it makes sense that rules don't apply to him. You know, I, I think that when that turns people off, it's just because they think that he is a type of creature that rules should apply to. And maybe that's not what they're seeing about the character itself. Yeah, maybe that's very intentional that the rules do not apply to him. Yeah. And I think there's like kind of two ways to really look at him. And one is like trying to fit in who and what he is in this world and how he fits into the larger cosmology of this world. And also, as a literary character, what does he serve in the narrative of the story? Before we get into your deeper theories, let's just talk about basically what he does. So what we've seen him do so far... Um, even before this chapter begins, is that he stops Old Man Willow from (laughs) killing the hobbits with just a few sung verses. Yeah, and I want to go back even just a little further. The Old Forest is a scary, spooky place. The trees are alive. They don't seem to love anything that goes on two legs. Old Man Willow is a very malicious villain of a character, They're right nestled up against the Barrow Downs, where we've heard stories about the Barrow Whites. This is arguably, outside of, like, Mordor, one of the scariest places in Middle-earth. And so when Tom shows up, it's like this massive contradiction already. Yeah. He is this merry fellow who doesn't seem to mind at all the spookiness of his surroundings. He's wearing bright clothing. Wearing bright clothes. He is such a contrast to everything we're seeing. And yeah, like you said, he sings this song that seems to have a power over the Willow Man. And it releases Merry and Pippin. And the hobbits are just kind of mesmerized. And he's like, come on back to my house. 
And they're like, okay. Okay, sure. And so they just follow him. And it's very bizarre. This chapter starts off with them stepping into his house and they are like bathed in light. And it's almost this weird, like they've stepped over into this portal into this really strange world in the house of Tom Bombadil. As soon as they go in too, they are uh, welcomed into this home. He has uh, the right number of beds for them. It's almost like he's been expecting them there. Even though later he says that we heard news of you, but like I wasn't going out of my way to look for you. So like they also have four pairs of Hobbit slippers (laughs) ready available. So I'm getting a big like room of requirement vibe from uh, Harry Potter, like just what the Hobbits wanted. Also the bedroom is like a low sloped building which we've been told in the prologue which is how hobbits who live in houses prefer because it reminds them of hobbit holes so we have this house almost tailor-made for the hobbits when they arrive there tom bombadil is actually a buckland name that the hobbits had given tom bombadil they have had uh some kind of encounters with him over the years and he even says that he got a lot of his news about the hobbits from farmer maggot so we know that he goes and sees farmer maggot and there's a poem actually in the poem collection of the adventures of Tom Bombadil called Bombadil Goes Boating, where he basically sails down the Withy Windle to the Brandywine to go see his old uh, drinking buddy, Farmer Maggot. And some hobbits actually receive him very poorly. They shoot arrows at him. And then he comes to the um, Buckleberry Ferry, where we saw the hobbits kind of go, and no one's there to meet him. And on the way down to Farmer Maggot's house, he runs into him in his cart and he's just like oh a very like merry welcome you gave me and then you find out they're old friends and then they go in they have a night of merriment but they discuss kind of the growing shadow out in the world outside farmer maggot wakes up tom is gone uh he doesn't remember him leaving and um so yeah that just gives you a little bit more of tom's relationship to the hobbits specifically of like the marish and buckland hobbits as they sit down and settle in at tom bombadil's house he regales them with song. They find that they themselves are singing. It's, it's just easier. easier to sing than to speak um, as they're conversing. And you can tell there's there's something weird going on. It's very magical. It's uh, yeah. And the Hobbits never really once question any of this. No, they're no. just along for the ride. Kind right. Of, and kind of realizing what's going on as it happens and then accepting it. Mm-hmm. They go to sleep. They have some very strange dreams in this house, almost like what they're most fearing. Like Frodo dreams about the Black Riders uh, coming up. Pippin dreams about being stuck in Old Man Willow again. Merry dreams actually about drowning, which is interesting given that he's a brandy buck who is familiar with water and boating. But Sam actually has no dreams, <laughs> which I find interesting that everyone's having these fearful dreams. And Sam, who we know later is very renowned as being like the brave, the stout hearted. Mm-hmm. He has no fear in the house of Tom Bombadil. Right. But they awake and it is raining and Tom says it's Goldberry's washing day. And so now's the time for tales. He begins to tell them all this ancient lore. When I was reading this section, the images I was understanding just felt very primordial like he was telling them like a creation story and well yeah but he's telling it almost in reverse yeah um if if you know like the lore he's he's telling these very specific events but going slowly more back in time until there's literally no sun and moon anymore it's back to the ancient starlight and darkness 
And they're able to see it. Yeah, when Tom and Goldberry sing or speak, it's like the hobbits can see these images in their mind. It really brings these images to life. It's mentioned several times that even though they don't know cognitively what Goldberry or Tom are talking about, they get these images. Yeah. And then therefore they know. This is kind of like their magic and yeah. that they have over them with their words. This is when Frodo is like asking him, who are you? He's just like, I'm eldest. He says he was here before the elves. He says he was here before the first acorn and the first raindrop. And he says before the Dark Lord came from outside. He is beyond ancient. He was the first. He was eldest. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. And, you know, this is one of these things that keep people guessing about what Tom Bombadil is. So... I think that's probably enough for us to go on to kind of delve into your theories. Right. Before I go any further, I know like we've talked a little bit about Silmarillion references and context and stuff. And even though we're getting to that after Lord of the Rings, I wanted to do that so that by the time we get to the Silmarillion, some of these stories are a little more familiar because it is a dense book and hard to get through. Um, I wanted to specifically talk about going to the very beginning of the Silmarillion here for a little vocab that I think is just from here on out going to be good vocab for any Tolkien fan to know and a good little history lesson. Tom is obviously this very powerful being and there are a lot of theories about what he is. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the hierarchy of power in Tolkien's larger legendarium and the cosmology. In the beginning of time, before the world was created, there was Iluvatar, who was essentially God. Iluvatar means the All-Father. And before there was anything else in this void, he creates these spirits of power called the Ainur. And Iluvatar, along with the Ainur, begin to sing this great music. After a while, Iluvatar shows the Ainur this vision of what their music looks like, brought to life. And he takes this thing called the Secret Fire, or the Flame Imperishable, which is like his power, and with it brings to life their music. And it is this thing called Ea, which is the world that is. It's basically the universe um, now exists out of this music that Iluvatar sent the flame to bring to life. And he told the Ainur that if you want to, you can go down into this world and bring it to fruition, this music that you sang, this vision that you just saw. And so they do, where they are divided into two further classes, the Valar and the Maiar. And the only real difference between them is that the Valar are the more powerful and the Maiar typically serve them. But essentially there are these very powerful angel and almost, especially with the Valar, godlike beings that serve God. No matter how powerful they are, they do not have the power to create. Only Iluvatar has the power to create. So they go about ordering the world and bringing to fruition this vision. And setting the world for the later children of Iluvatar, which are elves and men. And all of that is told in basically the prologue to the Silmarillion called the Ainu Lindley. It's the origin myth of Tolkien's world. There's theories about him that range from everything from he is one of the Maiar, to he is one of the Valar, to he is Iluvatar himself. And unfortunately, for the prevalence of these theories, they're all not the case. So we'll go back to Tom's words now and kind of try to fit him into one of these categories because we know he's not an elf he says he existed before the elves came westward and he's just clearly not an elf 
Yes, I mean, obviously. I mean, like, very obvious. Even though he's kind of very merry like the elves of The Hobbit. Um, yeah, but it's different. The Like, the way he's merry and the power he exerts over other things, which right. he says he's not actually forcing anything to do anything, right? He believes that every every living thing, every, maybe not even living thing, just everything is its own master. That's how he yeah. feels. He's a, the truest anarchist. And he's the master only of himself. Yes. Like, not of anyone else. Yeah, well, if we go back to Tom's words, saying that he is eldest, he was here before the first raindrop and the first acorn. You know, these are subtle references to the Valar. Yavanna was one of the Valar. She's basically this Mother Earth figure who uh, is the giver of fruits. She planted all, like, trees and stuff, so before the first acorn. Mm-hmm. There's a part in the Silmarillion that talks about Manway, the Lord of Airs, and Almo, the Lord of Waters, and how when they come together, they form clouds and rain. Mm-hmm. And so before the first raindrop, before Manway and Almo. And then the big one is before the Dark Lord came from outside. Mm-hmm. which there are two Dark Lords in Middle-earth. There's Sauron, who was one of the Maiar, essentially gone rogue. And then there was his master, Melkor, later known as Morgoth, who was one of the original Valar before he was expelled. Who is the Dark Lord that he's referring to? Is it the current Dark Lord, Sauron, or is he talking about his master? And he mentions like something about the darkness under the starlight when it was fearless. There's this whole thing in the Silmarillion that darkness is not originally this evil thing that was a corruption of melkor when he's referring to the dark lord here and that he was here in the times before darkness was a bad thing a corrupted thing he's referring to melkor so that's huge because melkor was actually the first of the Ainur to enter the world so if we go with that then he can't be any of the valar or the maiar and while in lord of the rings we never see any of the valar directly we see plenty of the maiar actually we never see Sauron, but he is—he was the most powerful of the Maiar, actually. And we see the Balrog of Moria, who was one of the corrupted Maiar from the very beginning of time, who joined with Melkor. And then we have the five wizards, who are actually these Maiar spirits in the forms of old men that were sent by the Valar to challenge the authority of Sauron. We have Gandalf the Grey, Saruman the White, Radagast the Brown, and then the two blue wizards. So all of these beings are these lesser demigods or lesser angelic figures that were originally supposed to all serve the will of Iluvatar on this world. So he's not an elf. He's not one of the Ainur. No. So what else is there? Well, then the other big prevailing theory is that he is Iluvatar himself, which... I think could be forgiven in a lot of cases, especially if you're looking just at the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings and the texts, because he says he's eldest. Later in the Council of Elrond, he's referred to by Elrond as his elven name, Iarwain Benadar, which means oldest and fatherless. If someone's describing himself as eldest and fatherless, and he's not one of the Ainur, who are one of these primordial ancient spirits, then who can he be? I think all signs point to Iluvatar at that point. Unfortunately, this is the one theory that Tolkien himself has most directly dispelled. In some of his letters, he said that he would never manifest God in such a way. He said especially someone as ridiculous as Tom. Um, (laughs) And just according to the rules of his universe, God... Iluvatar exists outside of the world 
he's given governance of the world over to the Valar and the Maiar to execute his will. But he himself, even though sometimes he does intervene and push things a little bit one way or the other, he mostly stays outside and does not exist within the world. And he's mostly created other beings to do that type of work for him. Yeah, he's handed that over to Manwe, the Lord of the Skies, who's essentially this Zeus-like king of the Valar. And I think Tolkien even likens like the great music and the Valar going down into the world, like government passing this city plan. And the Valar are the architects who are mm. now going to go in. Iluvatar is government. He has passed the plan. He's approved it. Interesting. Y'all go through it and build it. <laughs> what a mundane way to, I know, to right? present your very Entire interesting mythology. pantheon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So those are three popular theories that, unfortunately, whether just through the lore or Tolkien's own words, do not actually hold weight. And this is what kind of drives people crazy. So then there are other theories, which I tend to think holds a lot more weight. Um, there's one that he is a physical manifestation of the music itself. Mm-hmm. That the music was sung and then Iluvatar brought all these things in the music to life. And somehow with that came this original being, Tom. Which makes sense because he's singing all the time. He seems to exert some amount of power or will over other things that exist. Um, Almost like he's part of the fabric of the existence itself. Right, exactly. So I think this is definitely on the right track of getting true to the nature of what Tom is. Because the great music was this music that became reality itself. Right. And Tom sings all these songs, which seem to have a power over reality. So I definitely... I'm almost very certain that he has something to do with the music. Another theory I've seen is that he is a um, physical representation or manifestation of the flame imperishable that Iluvatar set to be the heart of the world and to bring to life the music. And a few things about the flame imperishable. I think Tolkien had directly equated it to the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So if we look at Iluvatar as he's all father, he's the father. Uh, the flame imperishable is the Holy Spirit. And then in another writing of his that you can find in the history of Middle Earth, there's this prophecy of men about the coming of this manifestation of God in mortal flesh, which is Jesus. But obviously, because Tolkien wrote these legends as the ancient history of man, this is long before the time of Christ, so the Son doesn't exist yet. Right. But you have that classic Catholic trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the flame imperishable is also the source of all life. It's what Iluvatar first gives power to the Ainur with when they're singing the music. It makes up the essentially the life force of all living creatures, elves, men, and dwarves. It's what gives us intelligence and sentience and our own willpower. So if... All of our spirits are just a simple, smaller flame of the larger prime flame imperishable, then, and that's what gives us intelligence and sentience, then shouldn't the flame imperishable have its own massive intelligence and sentience? The theory is that Tom is, in a way, the flame imperishable. And there's also, in addition to his association with song, when they go into his house, there's tons of mentions of candles and lamps and... He is often associated with light and fire. I think that's very intentional. I think there's definitely something there too. Maybe not as apparent as the great music, 
because he's obviously this singing character. But I think there's also an association with fire there. And you can look at all these mentions of candles and stuff as like, oh, well, they're staying in like a house. And I mean, this is how houses were lit. So is it really odd that they mention candles as many times as they do? And I would say yes, but I actually looked throughout, I word searched throughout this entire document of Lord of the Rings for mentions of candles. And I was thinking like I'd find in Rivendell and Lothlorien, um, Minas Tirith, lots of mentions of candles just as was common then. And there's actually not. It's only just, it's about 11 times when we meet Tom to when they say goodbye to him in the fog on the Barrow Downs chapter. And it's not in any of these other chapters, but in the chapter of the Dead Marshes, when Gollum is leading Frodo and Sam through these marshes, that actually has a similar number of mentions of candles. But they're in reference to these ghostly lights hovering over these dead faces in the water that Sauron has somehow kept this, you know, the necromancer has kept these images there. And it's never made clear what these candles are, but I always thought of them as... This is their spirits from, again, the flame imperishable that has not been able to move on into whatever the afterlife is of these people. So as much as the mentions of light in Tom Bombadil's house could just be, you know, descriptor compared to the rest of his writing, Tolkien doesn't talk about candles and lighting in the rest of the chapters where he normally would be expected to. Yeah. Um, in Rivendell and Lothorian, there's lots of mentions of lamps, but not candles. And again, the two chapters that have this just like absolute anomaly of candles and candlelight imagery is the House of Tom Bombadil and the Dead Marshes, mm-hmm. where they're specifically, I think, referring to the souls of people. And as we know, the souls of people come from the flame imperishable. I think that's a very plausible theory that's kind of on the right track. A uh, third theory that I like is that Tom is a living spirit of the world itself. And I think that makes a lot of sense. He's very much like a nature kind of spirit of the woods. Later in the Council of Elrond, they say if Sauron takes over first as he was last, he will fall. Um, But if he's first, he will be last. So it's almost like he is the life of the world itself. And I honestly think those three theories actually have a lot in common with each other. I don't actually see them as contradictory theories because... The theory that Tom is a spirit of the world itself. Well, the world's spirit is the is flame music and imperishable. And imper- yeah. That was, yeah, set to the music to give life and being to it. So I think all three of those theories are kind of on the right track. Who knows what Tolkien would have said? He kept it pretty secretive. Yeah, I mean, we're still really early on in the Fellowship of the Ring where uh, things are still hobbity, right? There's still. Very much. Very much, this is the sequel to The Hobbit. I'm writing this so my publishers let me publish it. And right. Tom Bombadil is the, like a dream character. Yeah, can I give a little history on that? So, and I should have said this earlier, I wanted to get into a little bit of the history of Tom Bombadil as a character. Okay. He predates The Lord of the Rings. Okay. He was, like I mentioned, he was in some poems that Tolkien wrote, but... Tolkien's children had a wooden Dutch doll that they called Tom Bombadil. So Tolkien, always willing to entertain his children, started writing these poems and stories about this character, Tom Bombadil. And in 1933 or 34, I think he had The Adventures of Tom Bombadil 
the poem, not the later poem book, um, published in this magazine, where we're introduced to Tom and the series of adventures he gets into in the Withy Windle Valley. He stumbles upon Goldberry, who he hasn't married yet. She pulls him by his beard underwater. And then he comes back up, and then he's caught by Old Man Willow in his trunk. And then later he's running from the rain. He's taken into this cave by these badgers. And then he escapes from them. Finally comes back home to the safe domestic lair of Tom. And behind his door there's a Barrow White hiding to take him. And he banishes the Barrow White. And all along these ways he kind of basically tells all these people like, Hey, leave me alone. And then they're like, oh, sorry, Mr. Bombadil. And leave him alone. And they're always trying to catch him, but he's always eluding capture. At the end of the poem, he finds Goldberry again, marries her. Everyone's in attendance uh, from Old Man Willow, the badger, <laughs> uh, Goldberry's mother, the river woman. Uh, but the Barrow White is in his mound in the hills crying alone. So he didn't make it to the wedding. So this poem was published in like 34, not too long after The Hobbit had just come out. And at the time, he was trying to come up with this sequel to The Hobbit. And he even considered at this time... Uh, making Tom Bombadil the protagonist of his sequel. So it's no mistake <laughs> So it's no mistake that Tom Bombadil seems very hobbitish um, and much like he belongs to the world almost of the book of The Hobbit because he was written around the same time in a similar way as a entertaining st- story for his children, even though it had nothing to do with his larger legendarium. And he really forced not just Tom, but this whole corner of Middle Earth, the Withy Windle Valley and the Barrow Downs, into his story. Um, but... He eventually realized Tom's not going to be the protagonist. It's going to be Bilbo's nephew. But Tolkien didn't want to eliminate him entirely. So he left him in as a sort of commentary. I think Tom Bombadil's really cool. Um, I love annoying characters who sing and do whatever they want. Honestly, he and Goldberry are goals. So (laughs) Um, I really like their whole setup. But yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I think... From what I know, even though I'm less read on the whole mythos of the world itself, I really think all of those things make sense. And I, I do feel just even even upon a first reading, the warmth of the Tom Bombadil chapters, it, it is tangible in the writing. It's such a cozy chapter. Absolutely. I mean, I love the part where they talk about where Frodo's relieved that it's raining because that means, well, we won't go further today. We'll just right. stay here. And then that's just Tom's like, it's a day for storytelling. And always like on a rainy day, I'm like always tempted to pull open that specific chapter and read it. So something unusual that happens while they're at Tom Bombadil's house is that they bring up the ring and he seems pretty uniquely impervious to the charm or curse of the ring. So yeah, while they're all sitting around at Tom's house and he's telling them tales, he, Tom asks Frodo for the ring and Tom puts it on his pinky finger and there's no sign of him disappearing, which is pretty crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It has no power over Tom. And then Frodo tries it on after that just to see is the thing still working. And it does work. Uh, Like Merry and Pippin and Sam are like, where'd you go? And Tom's just like, hey, I can see you. Take that off. This brings us something really interesting to Tom, which is like, how does the power of Sauron have no power over him? Right. Again, we don't know what he is. Trying to figure out what Tom is, like literally, 
in this world and how he fits in versus like versus in a more literary sense and what he offers to the narrative. And Tolkien did say that in his letters, he wanted to keep him in this story as a commentary uh, for certain things, such as the vanishing Berkshire and Oxford countrysides that he grew up in and the people that lived there as industrialization was happening. He talks about how Lord of the Rings is a story that's really cast in terms of good and evil. And both sides are actually seeking a type of power and control and how Tom is a character that exists in this world, but he doesn't seek control at all. He's just a total pacifist in like the truest sense. And I think he contrasts also really well with the elves who the elves who stay in middle earth, especially the ones that were originally came from the undying lands, the lands of the Valar, they want middle earth to be this world in which death isn't a thing. Right. They want it to kind of be this eternal spring. Whereas Tom, we see, goes with the seasons. Yeah. He is very much in tune with the natural way of things in Middle Earth, specifically the mortal lands. Things live and grow and die, and then a spring comes again, and Mm -hmm. out of that death and decay comes life again. As I mentioned earlier, not only is he a pacifist, but he's a total anarchist. He's master of himself. He sees everything else to be master of themselves. And he doesn't understand really basically the concept of dominion. Again, this is shown through his like lack of relationship with this ring, which is all about dominion. Yeah. I mean, the whole story is about fear and submission and dominion and Sauron. He's trying to use fear as a weapon. And even his own servants, the orcs, the reason they serve him is because they fear him. And he also wants control. And here's a guy who's not afraid of anything. And he doesn't seek to control anything. And he seeks only knowledge and understanding and just to be. And it's that lack of control that gives him power to interact with Exactly. And we'll, we'll rather, as they say later in the Council of Elrond, it seems like he has a power over the ring. And then I think whoever says that is corrected to, no, I think it's more accurate to say, the ring has no power over him. The ring is all about controlling people and playing to people's temptations for larger power. But what can the ring do to someone who doesn't have any designs to be more powerful than he already is? Nothing. It can't do anything. (laughs) So Tom kind of exists as a foil to both the good and the bad characters of this story, which are all kind of dealing with this problem of the ring and this problem of this desire for power. So... I think all these theories about who or what Tom is is less important than what does he offer to the narrative. You know, Tolkien himself said Tom is not an important person to the narrative, except as a commentary. Right. So, I mean, honestly, I think if we're trying to figure out what Tom is, what he's trying to say is much more important than his true nature. Yeah, he's sort of a a nod to everything that exists outside of the epic tragedy of the elves and men in middle earth right yeah which is defined by pride and glory and their fall because of that and tom is unfallen i don't know him and goldberry this sort of adam and eve if they didn't eat the apple they're the first beings they're the eldest you know sorry this is a weird reference but it reminds me of batman begins when liam neeson's character the villain says to batman he's talking about gotham city he's like this is not how man was supposed to live (laughs) tom bombadil and goldberry this is how man was supposed to live. Right, yeah. I think that's what Tolkien's trying to get at, really. 
before we move completely past Tom Bombadil, um, you and I had had a conversation the other day just about the sort of psychedelic nature of some of these passages. Um, We've seen a little bit of that through the prophetic dreaming, but definitely when the hobbits are listening to Tom Bombadil's stories, they're transported and they're sort of having a a trip that for me personally (laughs) reminds me a lot of psychedelic tripping yeah i mean this whole chapter feels like a massive like lsd or mushroom trip and of course like drugs are not the only way that people can experience altered states um i don't know much about tolkien's personal life but what i do know is that he was an extremely devout catholic and with ritualized religion and prayer and stuff like that Um, It's definitely, that's a very common way of of entering altered states. So I just think that's a really interesting part of these books. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, sometimes I feel like it is such like an authentic, like, psychedelic trip, which I I think sounds weird for someone like Tolkien. I don't think we normally associate him with drugs. And I mean, I'm not here to claim, obviously, that he did any drugs or anything. But I, I think it's almost more of a testament to his, to how learned he was in fairy tales, which honestly, I could see a lot of fairy tales originating from someone having a psychedelic trip or something like that. Or like ergot poisoning. <laughs> exactly. But so it's just interesting because I think Tolkien was so learned in fairy tales right. that even if he never did drugs, he could totally replicate the experience of it Right. just by totally replicating authentic fairy tale stories. Yeah. And I'd recommend also if you've never read his essay on fairy stories that you should read it. He has a very fascinating insight on when mortals cross over into the world of fairy and this world of bewilderment. And it's just very fascinating, his thoughts on all of that. And I think it sheds a lot of interesting light on that topic. Okay, so moving on from the House of Tom Bombadil, uh, they actually don't make it far until they need to call upon his services again. They run into the Barrowites, and um, he, of course, helps them out again, sends them on their way, and they finally make it into Bree, to the Prancing Pony, where they are supposed to meet Gandalf. Right. And he is not there. He is not there. But there's a bunch of hobbits there, and there's a bunch of humans there. Bree folk, Mm -hmm. all of them. They have a pretty good time there. But you can tell the whole time the the lurking shadow of the ringwraiths is around. Yeah, and well, also just people that are loyal to them. Right. Um, like Gandalf said, the enemy has many spies and stuff. And we see a lot of that here in Bree that aren't just these supernatural black riders. We see just normal, ordinary people of Bree and also these people coming up from the south that are definitely nefarious and in league with the enemy. Yes, they're getting something out of a, a deal with the Ringwraiths. Um Something that struck me in these chapters is that our little party of hobbits um, are very suspicious of two characters who end up becoming extremely important allies. Right. One of those is Barlam and Butterbur, who is the owner of the Prancing Pony. At first, when either of these characters approach our party, um, they're looked at with a lot of suspicion and it's unclear what their intent is, but it turns out they are both friends of Gandalf. Butterbur actually has a letter from Gandalf that he received ages ago that he was supposed to send to Frodo long. Which would explain why he never showed up at his birthday. Exactly. It's basically like, hey, I'm not going to make it. He forgot. But Frodo still receives it in the nick of time because within that letter 
is the information of Strider's true identity. And it's right when they're wondering whether or not that they should trust Strider at all. Right. And Strider is Aragorn, Gandalf's friend, who he even mentioned, I think, in the earlier chapter, Shadow of the Past. He said his friend Aragorn helped him track Gollum. So this is that man. And this is obviously one of the major characters of The Lord of the Rings. Um, And he has a very kind of humble introduction. Absolutely. I mean, he's definitely looked at with a lot of suspicion, not just by the hobbits, but by Butterbur and other people at the the Prancing Pony. They, uh, you know, he's a ranger. Um, he's part of this mysterious folk that roam the woods and they don't trust them they don't trust trust them um he seems to have you know some amount of power that is inexplicable they think he's a bad guy but turns out he's like basically as cool and hot and wonderful as a guy could be (laughs) yeah and i like how he has i like this kind of contradiction with aragorn on one hand he's kind of annoyed with the hobbits for how careless they've been uh, like with Frodo, uh, accidentally the ring slipping on his finger. Or like uh, he even overhears before they enter the Prancing Pony that Frodo's going to go by the name of Underhill and don't don't use the name Baggins. And he's like, if I could hear that outside, other people are listening. Right. And so once they start mistrusting him, he's kind of like, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's what you should be. I'm encouraged to see you have some sense. Right. But on the other hand, he later mentions like, Well, I was kind of hoping you would take me just at my word, because like a man who's hunted in the wild, like sometimes like hungers to like be accepted. Totally. And so I like that he kind of has this chip on his shoulder for how the brief folk treat him. Yeah. And even though he knows it's the smart thing to do for the hobbits to mistrust him, he wants, he's, he's a lonely dude. Yeah, he's just been a ranger. So he's just been roaming the woods, you know, doing his business and... And a lot of people yeah. stay away from him. And we don't know quite what that business is no. yet. But we will find out. Um, so eventually they, they all decide to set off together. Um, right. Once they've confirmed that he is in fact a good dude and working with Gandalf, uh, they set off. Yeah. And they eventually come to Weathertop, which is said to be an old watchtower of the old North Kingdom. And there they go up to look to see what is to be seen. You know, they were hoping to meet Gandalf sometime. And earlier they saw this big battle on top of Weathertop. It becomes apparent later that Gandalf was up there at some point. And then they're surrounded by the Ringwraiths who attack. As cool as Aragorn is in the movies, I think book Aragorn is a lot cooler. He is very um, assured in his own skill and... uh, his ability to lead and he basically tells the hobbits like you're not going to survive without me so like it doesn't matter what you want if you want to survive take my help like i'm going to die in the wild you're gonna uh... or you're just gonna die and i can't let that happen so i just think he's a real badass and i i enjoy his character oh yeah he's he's great and we've only scratched the surface of this (laughs) mysterious ranger But then the ringwraiths uh, close in on them around Weathertop. And Frodo is injured pretty badly. Yeah, he has this temptation to put on the ring. He sees the ringwraiths underneath for the first time, uh, specifically the Witch King who stabs him, who is the king and leader of the ringwraiths. Yeah, this wound has the potential to turn him essentially into a wraith as well. 
And this is the first time that Frodo has fully on entered the world, the realm of the Ringwraiths, visually at least. Yes. Everything he's seeing is of their dimension. Yeah, and it's kind of been hinted so far that the Black Riders can't really see that well. But in their world, they, they can, can see. They can see him. So when, so when Frodo puts the ring on, he's in their world, and right. now they can see him, clearly. I think it's interesting that ever since Frodo puts the ring on in Tom Bombadil's house, we sort of see in quick succession, he's putting the ring on more and more. Um, yeah. There's this magnetism to wearing the ring, whether conscious or subconscious, you know, he does it accidentally for the second time when he's in the Prancing Pony. Um, and then kind of on purpose, kind of not on purpose with the ring wraiths. It just seems like it's starting to get that hold over him that we've definitely seen with yeah. Bilbo. Mm-hmm. And he does like admonish himself for doing it. Mm-hmm. I think especially after this scene where he's stabbed, he's like, why did I let my willpower get the better of me? Um, which really kind of gets to the heart of the ring and this power about, or this this battle about willpower. So he's grievously wounded. Um, they are on the run with the ringwraiths hot on their trail, and they run into Glorfindel. Yes, who is this elf from Rivendell? Uh, and Frodo can kind of see this light about him, and again, he's going in and out of, you know, the spirit world essentially. So. There's something very special about Glorfindel. He is a very holy high elf. He knows Aragorn, and he's going to help guide them to Rivendell. But then the ring rays come hot on them, and he puts Frodo on his horse and says for him to, you know, go. Like, <laughs> they'll chase you. Don't worry about us. Right. Like, they'll follow you. And, like, honestly, speed is the only thing that can save you now. Frodo is falling into the shadow world. He crosses the fords into Rivendell. And has this confrontation, essentially, with the uh, Ringwraiths. Not, like, physical, but they're commanding him to come back to Mordor. He's trying to defy them. He's invoking Luthien the Elf and Elbreth, the Queen of the Valar. And the Witch King, uh, who stabbed him, steps forth and, through his power, causes his sword to splinter. And then this great flood comes and wipes them away. And Frodo passes out. And that's sort of where we we end this chapter section. Um, And actually, this is where we end the first book of The Fellowship of the Ring. Right. Yeah, there are six books total in The Lord of the Rings, with each volume, as we know it, being divided up by each two books. Books one and two is Fellowship, three and four is Two Towers, and five and six is Return of the King. So this is the end of book one. And next week, we will be starting on book two of The Fellowship of the Ring with chapter one, Many Meetings, reading through chapter five, The Bridge of Casa Doom. If you haven't already, you can follow us on our Twitter at halfaswellpod. Or you can check out our website at halfaswellpodcast.com. There we have the Hall of Fire blog, which if you're interested in more of my thoughts of Tom Bombadil that we couldn't get to into this podcast. Okay, we'll see you next week. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as well. Well.